For some, the week after Easter can feel like a little bit of a letdown. But I actually like, I actually like this Sunday. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love, there's, there's nothing like Easter Sunday. And last week was, was obviously glorious. But I, I appreciate this week after Easter for a different reason. Um, and, and, and it's this, it, it's, it's challenging as a preacher on Easter morning um, because in so many ways you have to bear in mind that there are seekers and skeptics and unbelievers, uh, those who culturally identify themselves as Christians but only show up on Christmas and Easter along with the, 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 the membership of the church, the, the saints who are here every week. And, and so you've got this diversity of people that you are trying to preach the resurrection to. And, uh, and it's a challenge, but it's a challenge I really enjoy, and I, I love preaching Easter Sunday. But this week, the week after Easter, I'm able to really focus in on those of you who I would say are committed to Jesus and the truth of his resurrection. If you are here the Sunday after Easter, then chances are you are devoted to Christ. I understand that that is an unfair generalization. I understand that there, every week there are skeptics among us, there are the unconvinced among us, um, and I'm certainly mindful of that in every sermon I preach. And maybe you're here this morning because something resonated with you last week and you wanted to hear more. That was compelling and you wanted to hear more about the resurrection. But by and large, I do think that generalization seems to hold true. Uh, so I, I suppose you could say on Easter, I'm hoping to convince. The week after Easter, I'm hoping to disciple the already convinced. And so I thought of this passage from Romans 8 uh, for one specific reason. Look at verse 11. Paul says, and of course Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, what we looked at last week, um, and there's echoes of that here. Paul says in verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is essentially my entire Easter sermon last week, if you were with us or listened to it on podcast. That's my sermon in one verse. We celebrated the news of Christ's resurrection as a first fruit event. Not the happy ending of a singular story, but the happy beginning of all of our stories, the harvest of resurrection. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 11. He's saying, look, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is going to raise you from the dead. And then look at verse 12. So then... Well, that is a transition into application. So uh, Christ has been raised. You also are going to be raised. That's last week's sermon. So then, what this means is that Paul himself is going to apply the message of our sermon from last week, which is why I thought of this passage as such a compelling follow-up to it. And so I thought... Nothing would be more appropriate than to let Paul guide our application. And his application is going to be one of evaluation. He gives the future promise, not just in, in verse 11, but really Romans 8, 1 through 11 is all about the promise of Christ and the gospel, which culminates in the resurrection of the dead. But he, he gives this 
uh, future promise. And then what he does is he invites us into present evaluation of whether that promise is true for us. So he speaks lofty um, promise, eschatological promise, future promise, resurrection promise. But then he brings it back down to our practical lives and asks, here's how you know if that promise is true for you. And he's going to do this in, in two ways. He's going to give us a response that is impossible and a response that is inevitable. So all that we looked at last week, resurrection from the dead, Christ the first fruits, our future promise. Paul's going to say, here is a response from last week that is an impossible response. And here's a response from last week that is an inevitable response. Let's look at each. Verse 12. So then, in light of the resurrection stuff, so then we are debtors. Now, let me stop there for a moment and define that very, very crucial term. You get this wrong, you're going to get the gospel wrong. What does Paul mean by debtor? It is not debt like we think of loan debt where uh, God has uh, saved us and therefore now we are paying him back for what he has done or anything like that. That would be a direct contradiction to the gospel of free grace, which nobody is more passionate about than the Apostle Paul. I promise you, Paul is not teaching that we are paying God back for salvation. So what does he mean by debtors? Well, he defines it himself in the verse. He says, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. Not to the flesh. To live according to it. Paul is saying that to be a debtor to something is to live according to something. It is an obligation. It is a lordship. It is an ownership. The best English word that I like to use uh, to convey the Greek here and the word I use when I preach through Romans 8, the whole chapter, is loyalist. So then we are loyalists. That's a good way to think of debtor. But notice that Paul first speaks of our loyalty in the negative sense. We are debtors, we are loyal, not to the flesh. Now that's important to note. He wants to make it known as clearly as possible what our response cannot be. And what it cannot be is loyalty to the flesh. He's saying the promise that I've been talking about, which happens to be the promise we talked about last week at the Easter service, it cannot be, our response to that cannot be this, loyalty to the flesh. Now, flesh is another term that we need to find. What does flesh mean? It's not just talking about the flesh, body, flesh and bones of the body. Flesh is Paul's favorite word to describe the sinful nature. The nature to rebel is so inherent in us that it becomes synonymous with our very flesh. If you're unfamiliar with the Christian understanding of sin and our fallenness, we believe that this is something that is so innate in us that our very nature is to rebel. So to be in the flesh, to be living, is to be sinning, in other words. And that's what Paul has in mind, our sinful nature. So Paul is saying this. Your response to resurrection promise cannot be loyalty to the sinful nature. Or let me state it more definitively for clarity purposes. If you are a loyalist to the flesh, 
then you cannot claim resurrection promise. You cannot claim verse 11. You cannot claim verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. You cannot claim what we talked about last Sunday if you are a loyalist to the flesh. Everything I said last week is not true for you if you are loyal to sin. Now, this is very important and serious. So we need to linger here and make sure we understand it completely. The semantics are are very important here, eternally important here. It does not say you cannot struggle with the flesh. It does not say that you cannot give in to the flesh. It does not say that you cannot significantly give in to the flesh in, 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 in big, life-changing, destructive ways. It cannot say that you can't have a season of giving in to the flesh. It does say you cannot live according to the flesh. You cannot be a loyalist to the flesh. He is speaking of what holds ultimate sway over your life. Your Lord, your Master, that which defines you, that which controls you, that which is so significant in your life that you live your life in accordance to its demands. The biblical claim is that to live according to the flesh, according to sinful nature, while at the same time claiming the promises of God is an impossibility. So let me just cut through all of the qualifications and speak very candidly here. And may God give us ears to hear uh, the warning of his holy word this morning. I'll say it as bold and yet as tenderly as I can. If you are living according to the flesh, everything I said last week is not true for you. Everything. All the promise, all the hope, all the joy, all the celebration, all the future resurrection glory that we celebrated last week If you are a loyalist to sin, it's not true for you. By the way, that warning was in the passage I preached last week. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I preached on it. He's talking about Christ in the first fruits. He says, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who are loyalist to Christ. So Christ has raised the first fruit. And then those who belong to Christ will be raised. That's not everyone. That's those who belong to Christ. Or negatively speaking, that's not those who belong to the flesh. Who are loyalist to the flesh. Friends, do not presume upon the promises of God. There there is preaching out there. And there are preachers, particularly in conservative evangelicalism in our tradition, who essentially use every sermon to place your salvation under a microscope and to determine whether it's real or not. Come to a church, preachers point out hypocrisy and force you to evaluate whether you're the real deal Christian or not. And that is unhealthy preaching and it leads to neurotic Christianity and people leaving every week wondering where they stand with God and it's just a mess. However, there are times 
when the text that is before us leaves us no choice but to deal with the prospects of hypocrisy. And this is one of those times. If you are living according to the flesh, last week is not true for you. In fact, the opposite is true for you. Not life, but death. Continue, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Everybody dies. So again, he has more in mind here than just normal physical death. Your destiny, in other words, is not this resurrected life that he's been promising. Your destiny is not resurrection, eternal life. Your destiny is condemned, eternal death. The antithesis of last week, in other words. Last week's promise and all that we said last week, the opposite. In every way, this is death in its fullest sense. This is death, death in an eschatological sense. This is death eternal. And this is the destiny of those who live according to the flesh. So, the question of questions is, and I should probably have an entire room asking this question, is, am I living according to the flesh? How do I know this? How do I discern this? What does that mean? Well, the easiest way to discern that question is by looking at what it means to not live according to the flesh, to eliminate what it looks like to live according to the flesh by talking about what it looks not to live according to the flesh. Let's go there. We've seen a response that is impossible. It is impossible to respond to God's promises with a life according to the flesh, let's look at the response that is inevitable. This happens every time. Continue verse 13. If you live according to flesh, you will die, period. But, here's his contrast, here's his argument in the other direction. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I love the nuances of this verse because they're very significant. How would, you, how would you expect verse 13 to be worded? If you were writing this, how would you expect it? It would be, if you live according to flesh, you will die, but what seems logical is if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. That, that, that fits, right? That, that, that's nicely worded contrast. Loyalty to the flesh, you're gonna die. Loyalty to the Spirit, you're gonna live. But that's not what he says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see why that nuance matters so much? To live according to the Spirit is defined as someone who is striving to put to death the flesh. In other words, there are two types of people in this world. Those who live according to the flesh, to the sinful nature. It's our natural impulse to just live according to it or those who are trying to kill the flesh, kill the sinful nature. More specifically, there are loyalists to the sinful nature and there are loyalists to the cause of putting to death their sinful nature. In other words, it is not an issue of sinfulness and sinlessness. That is a way too simplistic understanding of the Christian life. Sin is an issue for us all, and it will be while we live in this fallen world until Jesus is done with us. So what's the difference? Some love their sin and live according to it. Others despise their sin 
and live to put it to death. It's not a question of victory. It's a question of fighting. It's not a question of decisive success. It's a question of consistent struggle. It's not a question of perfection. It's a question of, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. Again, it will help me to give you a literal translation of the Greek here. The way your Bible reads makes it sound way too definitive, in my opinion, than it truly is. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds, that brings doubt because put to death sounds decisive. Are your sins dead? I haven't put my sins to death. Have you put your sins to death? Here's a little translation. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Now that sounds more relatable. So the question is this. Sin is in your life. This is inevitable. Are you right now striving to put it to death? Instead of making excuses for it, justifying it, do you hate it above all else? Instead of being at peace with it and making room for it in your life, do you, does its presence instead tear you up with conviction to where you cannot be at peace with it? Instead of desiring to keep it alive but hidden, kind of the strategy of appeasement that we do is being rid of it, your deepest desire. Are you wanting it dead and gone and are you striving to do so? That is someone whose last week's promise is true for. A hundred percent true. Because that is the work of the Spirit in your life. Loyalty to flesh comes natural. Putting to death the flesh is incredibly unnatural and must come from the Spirit at work in you. Which is why the verse reads the way it does. The verse does not read, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The verse reads, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's our response But our response is his work. And the greater point that Paul is making is if the spirit is at work in you now, then the spirit will do his final work in the future. Says the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is going to raise you from the dead because the same spirit dwells in you if in fact the spirit dwells in you. And the way we know the spirit dwells in you is if you're putting to death the flesh. So summing it all up and then we'll we'll, we'll talk application. Very simple. Paul says in verse 11, what we said last week, that if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then the spirit will also raise you from the dead. And I hold to that. that What we said last week is true. So then how do I know if the spirit dwells in me? Wherever the spirit dwells, the flesh is being put to death. Therefore, if sin is being put to death, the spirit is in you and therefore the spirit will raise you. So this all leads for us this morning to both a a, uh, somber warning and promise. The warning of death and the promise of life. Notice how definitive Paul is with both of those. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. No qualification, either direction. 
No hesitation, either direction. You will die, you will live. So here's the warning. Again, out of love and respect for you, because I, I firmly believe love demands honesty, I will, I will be as blunt as possible. If you are living according to the flesh, you will die. If you are living according to the flesh, not one word of the promise I preached last week is true for you. You will not be resurrected to receive the reward of eternal life. You will be resurrected to receive your condemnation of eternal death. That future destiny is determined by your present reality. What I mean by that is, well, when American, when American evangelicals evaluate their salvation, where they stand with the Lord, we tend to look back to past decisions that we made. We were trained to do this by revivalism of American Christianity. But the Bible never talks that way. The Bible always invites us to evaluate our current lives. It never asks, did you do something in the past? Did you say a prayer in the past? Did you have this experience in the past? It always says, who are you? Who are we now? Either proves or disproves the authenticity of the past. You have all experiences in the world. Who you are right now proves or disproves its authenticity. Let me give you a detailed translation of our verse again. If you are living according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, don't look back. Don't look back to some past event, an experience you had, a decision you made, a life you were living at some point of devotion. If you are living according to the flesh, you have zero reason to believe that any of that was authentic. It wasn't. It was hypocritical. So don't look back with what once was and also don't look forward and play the I'll get to it someday game that so many play. Look right now in the mirror with this question, am I right now living according to the flesh? If so, assurance of life does not belong to you and the threat of death hangs over you. But it doesn't have to be. It does not have to be that. This warning gives way to promise because as definitive as Paul is about death, he is equally definitive about life. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's very simple. Do you want assurance? that you shall one day live? Do you want assurance that everything I said last week is true for you? Then this day, kill. If you want to live then, kill sin now. There is no need to parse out. It doesn't matter. We get too caught up in this. There's no need to parse out. Are you a Christian or not? Because the application is the same here for all of us. Repent and put your sin to death. If you are willing to do that, then that's the Spirit of God. Whether it's a born-again work of the Spirit or an ongoing sanctifying work of the Spirit, it really doesn't matter. It's the Spirit's work. And if the Spirit is at work now, then the Spirit will raise you from the dead later. What we're looking for is the presence of the Spirit's work. So here's the promise. 
you can know today for certain that every single word of what I said last week is true for you. You can know today for certain that you will be raised from the dead to an eternal life of joy and salvation. And the way you know it is if you are willing to commit yourself to putting to death your sinful nature. The assurance is the same. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you shall live. Period. No hesitation, no qualification. So, will you put to death your sin? Not in a general sense that allows us to remain in this kind of ambiguous understanding of our sanctification of I'm a sinner and I need to do better. I mean that in your life which the Spirit is pressing in on with conviction. And here I know the Spirit's faithful. That which you are tempted to hold on to with clenched fists, but the Spirit is demanding you give up. Like he did to the rich young ruler when he says, I want your money. Like he did to the adulterous woman when he said, you've got four husbands, it's time to repent. He will press in by his spirit, just like he did when he encountered people in the gospels, he will do it to us. That which is hardest for you to repent of, but you know you must repent of, you know God is calling you to repent of. If you are unrelenting, if you are unrepenting, if you are a loyalist to sin, then I have no promise for you this morning. And I'm sorry. All I have is a warning, you shall die. But if you are willing, and when I say willing, I mean failing, (laughs) faltering, at times flailing, kicking and screaming willing. (laughs) You hear me, sensitive souls who will leave here freaking out? When I say willing, I mean I'm going to try, help my unbelief, willing. If you are willing then I have unfailing and certain promise for you this morning. You shall live. Of course your repentance needs help. Of course your repentance isn't perfect. Of course you're going to need help to do this. But are you willing to get help? Are you willing to get help putting your sin to death? If so, you will live. By the way, the most practical help I have to offer you on this um, is when I preach through Romans 8, the whole series, and I preach one verse, Romans 8, 13, which was the one verse that John Owen did his treatise on, mortification of sin, and I preached the most practical self-help sermon I can do. They kill me, and I did it. It's like seven strategies to kill your sin or something like that. Go back and listen. That's the most practical, helpful thing I can do. And then community helps, and we're here to help, and the church is here to help. We can help with repentance, but will you repent? If so, you shall live. So, it really is that simple. Are you willing to put your death to your sin? If not, he's saying you shall die. If so, he's saying you shall live. (laughs) And I know I sound like an Arminian revivalist, and I don't care. Because it's true here. This is what the text is saying. And it's good for us to do this. And don't leave here 
nuancing out and picking apart theology instead of dealing with the, the question of repentance. Will you today repent? Will you put to death your sins? If not, last week's sermon is not true for you. In fact, the opposite is true for you. You will die. If so, every single word of last week's sermon is true for you. You shall surely live. Let me pray that it would be the latter for all of us. Help us, O oh God, in somber self-reflection to consider our lives and to repent afresh. Again, whether that's a born-again repentance or a sanctifying repentance, wherever we are in that journey is not the issue. It's today, will we pick up the fight against our sin? If so, Lord, assure our hearts of your promise and salvation. And Lord, there's not a greater declaration of repentance than coming forward to this meal. It says, I'm a loyalist to you, Jesus, not my sin. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I come forward in obedience and loyalty to you, Jesus. And it is your message to us which, which says, my promises are sure. Those who are willing to join this fight of repentance shall surely live. Help us, O oh God, leave here with a proper balance of conviction and determination of assurance and, and, and a newfound repentance. We trust you with that spirit for your application work. In Jesus' name, amen.